0: Her style is defiant, raucous, tough, and
1: very sexy. But as you will see, there's a lot more to her than meets the eye.
0: There's a lot that Pat Benatar doesn't let show. Her vulnerability, her traditional conservative values, her desire to have a normal family life
2: i'm a real softy but that's not uh, the side that i care to like share with everybody that's like something else i keep at home
0: instead america's most popular female rock singer
1: shows the world a tougher more aggressive face the face of an independent modern woman who
0: demands and her strut have
3: caused her to be described as a passionate, sensual vamp. A tiny, sexy Tinkerbell. You are,
2: how much do you weigh? Um, About 92. I mean, you act like a 400-pound gorilla gonna tear the bars off the cage. Please, please introduce me to your friends. Sir, this is uh, Neil Giraldo. Hello, Neil. Hello. How are you? Nice to see you. Gentleman back on drums. Myron Grumbacher. Myron, forgive me. Nice to see you. This gentleman here. Roger Capps. Roger, thank you. And lastly. Scott Sheets. Scott, my pleasure. Thank you very much. I mentioned the opera. How, how, uh, I don't even know how to talk this language. <laughs> how many octaves is your voice? I mean, isn't there something, doesn't that have, don't you have an unusual range? Mm, yeah, it's about three and a half octaves. It's not that unusual though.
3: All I was looking for was a great singer. I just wanted to find that so I could write songs, produce, write do, make records, make great records.
2: I didn't want to be a solo artist. I wanted what Robert Plant and Jimmy Page had together or Keith and Mick. I wanted that back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. She was looking yeah. for you, no, it was for
3: crazy. there was a you, correct. And I was crazy. looking for her. And as soon as I got there I go, you need to sing we got to sing in a different key. And her tough cookie
1: persona would speak to a generation, an icon of female empowerment who decades before me too didn't take any crap from any DJ who held the power of playing her songs.
2: The minute I'd walk in there, he'd say, Why don't you sit right here and we'll see if we can get that record playing you. In the beginning, I mean, I was still kind of like timid. And then I finally started to realize: wait, I have an opportunity here. If I change this for myself it will start the ripple effect. I had power now. So that changed everything.
0: Then came
1: Halloween, 1977. We are coming into a new situation. And her costume taken from the B-movie Cat Women of the Moon.
2: Spandex and her career would never
0: be the same.
2: I had all this big eyeliner on. I had this, this little short thing with these black ties and these little short boots and a ray gun. So I had been doing fine, having gigs and all that kind of stuff. But I sang in costume that night. It was a whole other experience. And I remember standing there thinking to myself, hmm. You hear about the surfer guy who pulled a knife in Mr Hand this morning? Oh no. He just called him a dick. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, people exaggerate so much here. Linda, that girl looks just like Pat Benatar. Oh, I know. Wait, there are three girls here at Richmond who have cultivated the Pat Benatar look. Janelle Sembler, Mary Ann Zlotnick, and the red tights. Do you think guys find that more attractive? Oh, Stacy, please, give me a break. You are so much prettier than them. Yeah, I, I know, but... You think they'd be better in bed?
0: Almost instantly Pat and Neil had realized their connection went far deeper than
1: musical collaborators. But then there's this sort of winning life's lottery component oh, to it. the chemical
2: thing was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> by
0: 1982 they had married, formalizing their two against the world posture in dealing with
1: the music business.
2: I didn't start this by myself. He and I did this together from day one.
1: It seems like it's important to almost set the record straight. This was a partnership.
0: It was.
2: Somebody said, I don't understand why his name has to be up on the marquee, too. I said, because every song that you love and listen to was created by him,
1: (laughs) Okay, Pat, if you say so, we'll get into that. Welcome to CFX episode 19, Crimes of Passion, or maybe Crimes of Geraldo. We'll (laughs) we'll have to to find out.
0: That might be a little bit of a point of contention, but we'll see. But that's definitely one of the things we're going to talk about. All
1: right. So uh, CFX, as you may be aware at this point, is a cultural futures exchange. This is where we examine different elements of cultural ephemera, music, movies, TV, uh, stage, all that. Diving into the context and time that they came out, what's happened since. Our take on the future valuation of the item in terms of like a fake stock market deal, if you should go long or go short, if you think it'll go down in value or stay neutral. And it is not very much more complicated than that. So officially, we're going to cover the second Pat Benatar album, Crimes of Passion. But unofficially, we're going to skew and wander away from that album in certain places just because we feel like it, right? So,
0: Actually, for me, I'm covering... Most of her stuff. I mean, I think, I think for me, this was the peak, and so it's probably going to be emphasized a little bit more, I think, than than normal. But I think with Pat Benatar, you know, it, it, we tend to do this, right? So we have some artists where we'll focus on a particular album either because that album is so strong, or because it just overshadows the rest of their. Their career, right? With Pat Benatar, there's no real, if there is a standout album, it's going to be this. But there's a couple of other albums that are important too. And I think this was the, obviously, this is her biggest selling album, as we'll talk about later. You know, it's not Get Nervous, is it? It's not Get Nervous, but Get (laughs) Nervous was successful. And I actually like a lot of Get Nervous. You know, I think, you know, we'll talk about our evaluations and where I sort of get off the Pat Benatar bandwagon and where I yeah. get on and where you get on and off. Cause, cause some of this, st- obviously she evolved and we could talk about that. Um, You know, her sound kind of became more, less rock and more pop as things went along. Um, but why don't we just go into our background yep. uh, first?
1: Sounds good. So I'll kick it off. So Pat Benatar, what I mostly remember of her when in hearing her early on in the, very early eighties. Um, I know her first album came out in, in 1978, I think. Right. But I don't know if I really heard her much. I probably heard her songs on the radio. Um, definitely, you know, she's very popular. Obviously the hits I heard, I really, my first memories of her were really MTV and the videos, um, that we'll talk about. Um, I never have owned any of her albums that I recall. I, I seem to remember I might have had like a greatest hits copy of, of an album or something like that or on a, on cassette that I inherited. But I don't even recall that. I don't think I ever sought out her albums, but I like the songs that I heard, you know, especially the, the main ones that we'll wind up talking about. Um, I still listen to them. I still like them. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why um, we wanted to do this episode is, you know, all these years, uh, 40 years later, we're still listening to them or, or think that there's something there. Um, And we'll talk about to the degree and the the scope and range of that.
0: And And, we should briefly mention that this is, you know, we should, I kind of want to say when we're recording this, because I have some things to say about her personally, that I always worry You know, I have an opinion of somebody and all of a sudden there's some Bill Cosby like revelation that ruins everything. (laughs) So I don't see that coming for them. They seem like really good people. I'll just put it that way. For the most part, they seem very down to earth and normal. Uh, And we'll talk about that and how that's kind of played out in their history. But um, I just want to say this is July 2022 right now. So she was just inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's right. So we should mention that. And we'll talk about whether you know what what we think about that, I'm sure during our evaluations or whatever. But we should mention that that that's timely. Right. So sorry. Continue. I just wanted to throw that out.
1: And I want to point out Pat Benatar is being inducted, not Benatar Geraldo. Right.
0: (laughs) I actually don't know if he's going to be what that what that is. But yeah, I think it's just her. But I don't know because you know how they do that. Like Bruce Springsteen was inducted, but then they inducted the E street band separately. And then the Beatles call get inducted and then their solo careers get inducted. So I don't know because essentially he was with her the whole time, yeah. you know, and and what we can, we're definitely going to talk about his influence and how important that was or not, you know, and I have some things to say about that too, that aren't necessary. I think Jeff has a certain perspective and I have a certain perspective. And I think, um, neither one of us are on the side of he was absolutely as important as her. Like, I don't think either one of us are on that side, but we'll talk about that more later. We'll get into that. Because I think this was something Jeff kind of brought up that I think is a really interesting angle for this that is unique to the show. And so that's why we're going to talk a lot about him. Um, But anyway, sorry, continue.
1: Yeah, I mean, the only other personal history I have with her is I actually met her kind of in air quotes. I didn't actually hang out and we didn't braid each other's hair. Or wow. anything,
0: but wow. I was in
1: a restaurant. This must've been like 81, 82, 83, somewhere in the early eighties. It was an Italian restaurant. I forget the name of it somewhere up on Mulholland actually. And the the restrooms were down this hall kind of like in the back of the restaurant. And I went there and, and I was walking down the hall. And she came walking past me the other way um and it's like one of those things where you know like 10 feet past she's like, like holy shit that was Pat Benatar right like it doesn't register you know right, right away but it was her I saw her at her table later I noticed where she she was sitting um she looked exactly the same the, the thing that stuck in my mind even though I was What
0: year was this? Uh 82
1: 83 maybe something oh, like that. Oh wow. Yeah yeah. Wow. Yeah. This was at the height of her fame I was a kid and yeah. I, 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 I towered over her even as a, as a kid. And I'm not oh, like yeah. six,
0: seven. So five foot tiny. tall, five foot tall, a hundred pounds soaking wet. Yeah. she, was, <laughs> yeah, she not was, Like not even a hundred pounds. She left, was tiny, tiny. She looked yeah. like a
1: little kid. She looked like a little kid where, and she was wearing heels of course. I'm sure she always wore heels cause she's so, so tiny, but um, she, she just looked very, very thin and frail and skinny and, And it's kind of funny that this, you know, I mean, Dick Clark, you know, uh, you know, rest in peace. But on national TV, asking a woman how much she weighs
0: is he's the worst interviewer ever. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Every time I find a Dick Clark, you know, when we do these podcasts, I find American Bandstand. I am absolutely cringing at his little interviews. They're so bad. They, I mean, he's the worst. He's I don't worst. see why he had that job. He's absolutely the worst interviewer of all time. Yeah. Maybe
1: just as a producer.
0: I mean, obviously yeah. he was trying
1: to make a point that she's so tiny and has this incredibly large voice. We'll talk about that.
0: Which is true. Yeah. Is she's true. all lungs. I mean, it's like crazy. She has so much power and such a small package. Yeah. You know, it's she, unbelievable.
1: She was, she said on that she weighed 90 pounds. I believe that she looked incredibly small. She looked like a child frankly.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, in her, in, in her physical stature, but she looked the same. I mean, she had that same makeup she always had during that time. It was less exaggerated, you know, obviously, and not on stage or for a photo shoot or something like that, but it was fucking her. I, you know, I walked by, I was like, holy shit, that that's Pat Benatar. And I, when I went back out, I was kind of looking around the restaurant and I saw where she was sitting with, you know, a table of people, whoever they were. And, uh, yeah, there she was. So that. So that was my, uh, my time I met her. I occupied the same space time as her briefly as we walked past each other in the hallway uh, to, to and from the restroom. So that's my personal
0: history. Why don't you take it away? All right. So my personal history starts right at the beginning. Classic Rock, KMET, KLOS. We've talked about these stations before. It's in Southern California. They played Pat Benatar right out of the gate. You know, obviously she had a few singles from the first album that didn't take. I don't know why anyone listening to the first album wouldn't put Heartbreaker as the first single. It makes no sense. It's probably, I think it's a contender for her greatest thing she's ever done. And um, it just rocks. We'll talk more about the first album, how weird it is. Because it's like nothing else sounds like Heartbreaker, but that's like the definitive sound. And I heard that on the radio. I loved it immediately, you know. And uh, of course, hit me with your best shot. And all these came out, right? You better run, treat me right. I loved all of it, right? So now my story with Crimes of Passion is pretty hilarious because, so I was a big Van Halen fan and the first Van Halen album I ever got on record was Women and Children First, right? I got it as a gift. I opened this record up and the inner sleeve of the record is a poster. And it is a poster of David Lee Roth chained to a fence with the zipper unzipped. And I immediately put this on my wall. And I already felt fucking weird for having this poster because it is a pinup. It's like, if I no one's
1: judging you about that.
0: Yeah, I know. But I, but I didn't think about it. I just thought, I love this band. Let me put this up. And I felt kind of weird. Like, shouldn't this be a woman on my wall? Like, shouldn't I have like Heather Thomas, which I later did by the way, um, (laughs) you know, or some pinup. Right. Victoria Principal or whoever was was hot then, you know. Jacqueline
1: Smith would have been. Yeah, mine, Jacqueline yes. Smith or yeah. or
0: Farrah Fawcett, right? But I had this guy, this sexy guy, the foxy guy, is, yeah. is, uh, um right, uh what's his name would say, sorry. Yeah. But anyway, so I had this poster, and we had these friends. Like I lived in this condo complex, and it was like there were a lot of kids in it. And we had this, like, we were right in front of this playground. So we would all hang out on the playground. And there was this girl who was a few years older than me. Like, I was, like, uh, what, sixth grade? She was, like, eighth grade, right? she was she was like hanging around with us and she came into our house one time because the my parents were also friends with them. They were from Michigan. My stepdad's from Michigan. So they became friends and she saw that poster. And she's like, Oh my God, he is so sexy. I want that poster. What do you, what do you, you know, <laughs> I'll trade you anything. I'll buy it from you, whatever. And I was like, cool. Cause I kind of want to get rid of it because you know, I, I love the music of women and children first, but I was just like, this thing's weird. And I kind of had it there. So It turns out she had crimes of passion. So I'm like, fuck, I'll trade you that, you know, because I like some of the songs. And it was weird because I got, and then I got the album and I played it and I liked it, right? I I mostly still kind of did that needle drop on the hits, but, you know, um, at the time, but I later I would realize it's actually a really great album. Did you put up the
1: poster of Neil Giraldo at that point? Or there is no poster
0: of Neil Giraldo, but, you know,
1: maybe my, I I don't know. I
0: kind of went, I think I would, I think my taste was more of the, hairy chest you know long hair guy, you know so anyway um (laughs) so i didn't put up there was no poster of neil Geraldo, but i did feel funny owning the record because you know we'll talk about the cover in the history um but the cover is just her and she's kind of like in a ballet studio and she's got this little little leotard on with little, uh you know uh bedazzled kind of bedazzled shit on it and i kind of felt like this is like a woman's album you know i didn't feel like this was you know, you listen, you look at the album and then you play the music and it's like this hard rock and AOR kind of power pop, you know, maybe a little in new wave influence, but mostly like hard rock and album. You know, right. it's like and I just had a disconnect with that. And it's funny that they thought to market it that way, because I really thought of this more like I thought Heart, which is a rock band, yeah. you know, they just happen to have a really kick ass female singer. And it was just weird to me, that disconnect, right? And then, of course, I remember the Fast Times code. I was looking for that, too, man. Great minds think alike. We both love Fast Times. That's definitely going to come up in the future on this show. And I was like that Pet Benatar where you're talking about all the girls who have the Pet Benatar style. And this yeah. was a thing. And I remember I was having arguments with friends over who the queen of punk was. Okay. Well, we were topic. saying we yeah. were saying. We were, you know, we didn't know about uh, polystyrene and you know Susie Sue and these real actual kind of punk and post-punk icons of England at that time. We were talking about like, oh, it's Pat Benatar, it's Blondie. We didn't even say Debbie Harry. I don't even think we knew Debbie Harry. We just said Blondie, and of course, neither one of those are punk at all. But that's what we didn't know. But it was what about Linda Linda Ronstant? Well, Linda Ronstant, yeah. I mean, really. (laughs) that that's something we should talk about the influence. If we talk about the influence of Pat Benatar, I have no doubt that Linda Ronstadt was listening to that. Right. Yeah. I mean, when she came out with mad love, which we talked about on our Billy Joel glass houses episode yeah. Um, and Billy Joel was probably listening to this too. Sure. And they share a hometown. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit in the history, but, but no, so I just remember that, that kind of thing. And I think it was all her style that, you know, you played the clip at the beginning about the cat women of the moon, Halloween costume and how that turned into kind of, be kind of, you know, appropriate for the time. She had kind of a little bit of it, you know, she did define a look in the eighties as Pastimes kind of uh, satired there. Yeah. Um, and of course I remember, you know, when I met my wife later, we talked about, you know, my wife is a massive Kate Bush fan, but the re the way she was introduced to Kate Bush was this album.
3: So yeah. when she
0: was in junior okay. high, she had this album and she loved Wuthering Heights and played it over and over and over again and it's a great cover, Wuthering Heights. I mean, Pat we'll talk about Pat Benatar's talent for mimicry when we talk about the first album, but she could sing anything, I think. And and she did that very well. And so I remember Pro- Promises in the Dark. I'll be talking about that in my eval, one of my all-time favorites. Um, Shadows of the Night. I've listened to this in the past week and it's just been stuck in my head on repeat. It's so catchy. Um, You know, so I remember that. I remember the world war two video, which we'll talk about in the history, you know, that had judge Reinhold in it. Um, (laughs) And, um, you know, and of course, then she kind of went pop. Right. So there was that big shift with love is a battlefield. And I, you know, I, I love is a battlefield and invincible. And I like those songs now. I think they're good for what they are, but to me, I really like the rock, Pat Benatar. I like the guitar. I like the, the you know, the real, I mean, the thing about Pat Benatar's voice, and we'll talk more about this when we talk about it, is she not only has this perfect tone, you know, because she was trained, obviously, as we'll talk about in the history, but she's got an edge. She's got that bite, you know? She's yep. got that and edge. And I think, um, you know, not a lot of female singing. I mean, you could look at someone like Joni Mitchell as this incredible range, high voice, but she, you know, when she tried to rock, you listen to like uh, Court and Spark Raised on Robbery. It's like the worst fucking thing ever. I fucking hate that. That's one of my least favorite Joni Mitchell songs, even though I'm an Uber fan and I love her. Like when she actually tried to do rock, it was embarrassing. You know, whereas whereas Pat Benatar, it just fits right in. So when she went pop with Love is a Battlefield, even though I think that's really catchy and I think it has its merits and invincible, which is, you know, a powerful vocal performance. I just don't like all the synths and stuff. Like I think they kind of bury her voice a little bit and, and I just wasn't into it. I And I did see Legend of Billy Jean when I was a kid. I was Me all too. on cable. Yeah. So uh, kind of weird revenge fantasy. And then, I, you know, sex is sex is a weapon. I remember that as so bad, you know, and we'll talk more about the video. Um, so then my next kind of encounter with her personally was my uncle. You know, he would go to Kanocti. I mentioned this in our Cheap Trick episode. Right. And we talked about how I went to see like Weird Al and Cheap Trick and. Uh, I any money there because my uncle had a connection and he would get free tickets. So he went to see a ton of people there. He saw Joan Jett. He saw Pat Benatar. He saw like Leon Russell, all these, you know, James Brown before he died. And he has this, my uncle's a great photographer and he has these incredible pictures of the shows. I mean, he could publish them in a book. That's how good they are. But he said Pat Benatar was amazing. Yeah. And she did this thing where she, when she sang hit me with your best shot, it was kind of this anti abuse anthem and she got all these women from the audience to sing on the chorus she brought them on stage and he said it was just one of the best shows he's ever ever seen and of course her voice you know as we'll talk about has lasted pretty damn well i mean you know she's like 69 years old now she can't hit those notes like she could but her tone is still awesome you know it's like she took care of her voice for sure um You know, and then recently, you know, my old record collection, I lost it all in a kind of tragic story when a friend of mine died. And I've talked about this before and I probably will come up again. So I didn't have my old copy of Crimes of Passion, but I've since reacquired that and Precious Time, which I think are two my two favorites from her. Um, I think they're the most consistent. And we'll talk about that in the A-Bells. Okay, let's move on to the zeitgeist. Okay, this zeitgeist is pretty easy, right? Uh, you know, in some ways, in some ways, it's not right. We talked about in the Motley Crue episode, how there were some influences we couldn't nail. And I think there's a little bit of that here. You know, obviously, um, you know, this is female rock singers. Right. So we're talking about mainly, you know, we're talking about the the classics Janis Joplin and Grace Slick were obviously an influence on all of these women. Um, And then Ann Wilson, right? She's the other contender for my favorite rock singer, right? It's really close between the two of them. She is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Another singer who still sounds pretty damn good.
3: And, um, you know,
0: but then there's like Stevie Nicks, who's not a real singer in a lot of ways in this level, right? She doesn't really know how to sing properly. She sings through her throat. I think she's had training since then, but she's got an awesome voice that's totally unique. You know, it's almost like a Billie Holiday kind of thing. And now like. Now it's almost like a billy goat, but that's a different, <laughs> that's yeah, a different like issue. Rod Stewart made it with the billy goat or something. It's all yeah. scratchy and, and aged, you know, and yeah, her voice hasn't really held up. No. She never, I mean, she did a lot of drugs too, which we'll talk about with Pat Benatar did not. Right. right. So she took care of her voice. Um, Chrissy Hind, you know, the pretenders were an influence here. I'll talk about that. You know, especially on Neil Giraldo as I'll talk about um, yeah. a, a couple of songs. There, oh, he but, fantasized
1: um, about being in a pretenders for sure.
0: Oh, yeah, I got, yeah. yeah. I mean, James Honeyman Scott, we'll talk about yeah. him a bit. Um, one of my favorite of all time guitarists, um, but he, but Chrissy Hine, you know, she, even though her voice is of a whole different character than Pat Benatar, you can hear the influence. I think yeah. she was influenced and just by her power, right. And her style, like her, her, her attitude assertiveness, too, right. right? Yeah, her yeah. assertiveness because there's no more, assertive female rock than the pretenders first album as well, we'll talk and you're about talking about the queen of punk that's who the queen of punk yeah is yeah yeah exactly exactly like you know precious and shit and yeah it's pretty for hardcore sure. shit actually even though it's still really catchy and kind of yeah. crosses over into aor uh we'll talk about that album it's just going to be like two hours of hero worship if we talk about that from my perspective yeah, mine too, but anyway you know, right yeah. Joan Jett obviously again not a not a powerhouse vocalist, but. A rock vocalist, right? Rock edge, and and again that image, and of course Debbie Harry, which they were acquainted, and they worked on a film together early on, um, you know. And Debbie Harry again, not a powerhouse singer, but you know, just the, the the as a leader and a charismatic leader of a band, right? So that's the that's one thing, right? So we talked about right, we talked about the female singers, but obviously there's also this other class of male singers who are have these what I call really strong vocal chops, right? They're almost like they could be offers like Freddie Mercury comes to mind, right? Everybody talks about him. He's got an incredible tone. He could almost be an opera singer. Right. Yeah. And then you've got uh Steve Perry of journey. He who's He's more of got a kind of that Sam cook R and B thing going, but he's got incredible range. And, you know, and then the one that really reminds me of Pat, and I think she was really influenced by this was Lou Graham. Yeah. You know, I think, I think foreigner reminds me a lot of Pat Benatar's music. There's this, there's this kind of power pop to it, but there's also that a modern kind of slick AOR,
1: you know who produced Foreigner, right, before he produced uh, Pat,
0: is Keith, Ol- Keith Olson. Oh, we're going to talk about him. Yeah. Because that's a that's a huge contention in Pat's book of the role of Keith Olsen versus Neil Geraldo. And I know you have a lot to say about that. But yeah, the Keith Olsen sound, if he has a sound, you hear it in Double Vision, Hot Blooded. You hear it in Hit Me With Your Best Shot. You hear it in You Better Run. You hear it all over those first, uh, those second two Pat Benatar albums. And then of course, you know, I, you can't forget Brad Delp, you know, incredible singer, maybe, maybe he might be the best you know, incredible. Yeah. He's yeah. up there. And then, um, you know, you mentioned Bruce Dickinson, you know, he's very operatic. He's got, you know, he had incredible chops at the time. And then, you know, obviously Pat was influenced by Robert plant. You know, I, I definitely hear Robert plant a lot more in Ann Wilson. Um, But, but you can see that influence, right. She wanted to be a rock singer in a band. You know, she said at the beginning, And that's essentially what she was. And then of course I mentioned that slick AOR kind of a more modern, you know, you have like classic rock, but then you've got this late seventies AOR like journey. And when I say AOR, I mean album oriented rock, right. Right. I'm talking about FM radio rock, you know, we call it classic rock. Now, you know, millennials and Gen Z call it dad rock. Uh, So you've got journey, especially around escape where it was very slick. You've got foreigner, as I mentioned, and I think Loverboy a little bit too is kind of very similar. It's around this time, and it's kind of very similar. And then you've got the whole punk thing, right? And I think this was down to the Cat women of the Moon style. Really, Pat Benatar's album, uh, music has very little in common with punk. Uh, you know, even her harder rocking songs like Hell Is for Children, where she's just screaming. Yeah. You know, it's still classic AOR rock. You know, but but there was that whole question about because she had that new style. You know where she fits in with the new wave and there's a little I, I think there's some songs like prisoner of love and out of touch on her um crimes of passion album that are very power poppy you know they kind of maybe a little bit of cars in there or maybe some pretenders influence i know that you know the song precious time is extremely pretendersy um mainly because of the guitar playing and it finally had this one category because jeff brought this up you know this is a band that used so many third-party songwriters right? They didn't write a lot of their own songs. Most of the hits that, you know, they didn't write and Jeff's going to go into that on his evaluation as a kind of thing. But I would like to point out that this is kind of where music has gone. You know, I mean, and we saw it in the late 80s with Aerosmith getting back together. You know, Aerosmith is the 70s. They wrote most of their own songs. And in the 80s, they hired these like Diane Warrens and Holly Knights and you know, there's Linda Perry. There were all these like kind of uh, what's his name? Um, I forget the guys. uh, Desmond Child. Desmond Child, right. Who did Kiss. Kiss was the first to do this. But no one did this more than Pat Benatar. I mean, she had like, you know, Holly Knight was a big one with Love is a Battlefield and this guy Billy Steinberg as well. And there were others, right? Um, Eddie Schwartz uh, was another one. So they would hire these professional songwriters. But this was kind of a groundbreaking thing to do. And in a way, it's a bad thing in some ways because it Kind of says why don't you write your own songs you know you know we maybe we have more respect for people who write their own songs but at the other side it kind of gave pat a little more longevity than she might have had right so she was able to change her style with we belong and and love is a battlefield and invincible which is totally different with these uh, external songwriters and you know this is where music has gone like the artists of today for ba- for better or worse probably for worse and some of our old probably guy opinion, yeah you know katie perry taylor swift um, taylor swift writes some of her own songs but this guy max martin he's the sweetest songwriter i mean he's written most of the songs that you hear on the radio and pop radio i mean he's he, it's incredible the guy has 25 number one songs i mean that's insane
3: yeah really? right
0: but it but it's kind of where music has gone so in a way pat was kind of a forebearer of this um so you know, i just wanted to say that and then Right. Of course, Jeff mentioned his beloved Quarter Flash. Yeah. I, I it was funny, dude. I was I was gonna joke. If we did a zeitgeist on Quarter Flash, it would be like, okay, Zeitgeist, Pat Benatar. Okay, next history, you know, yeah. we would just say Pat Benatar because this is such an obvious clone, even though Quarter Flash has the saxophone and they don't really rock as hard, really. No, it's kind of very no. poppy, right? But but I mean when you read about the history of Quarter
1: Flash and how they got signed, the, the competing record companies were looking for their version of Pat Benatar flat out and they were signed. And if you listen to the, the woman, the main woman in quarter flash, you know, she's like, yeah, we are told that we are looking for a Pat Benatar competitor. And she kind of didn't look like Pat Benatar, but again, you know, an attractive woman singer kind of who had serious chops. The woman in quarter flashes were good singers. So, right. Right. You know, anyway, 2020s uh,
0: commentator said she wasn't quite the Tinkerbell maybe. no, uh, now, or, or maybe may- she wasn't as much of a seductive vamp, you know. Yeah, like, maybe. Um, not. Or may- maybe she weighed more than ninety pounds, but yeah, nevertheless. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think what that, that just goes to show what a big deal Pat Benatar was at the time. What a phenomenon she was, and because it kind of, you know, even though Heart was around, it's weird how they don't mention. A lot of times people won't say, "Well, Heart was already around. They were already doing this. You know, already yeah, playing sure. really kind of Led Zeppelin style hard rock." but pat benatar was such a phenomenon and her image was such a big deal that you know it was a big deal you know uh at the time so pat was born just to go back into the history a bit um pat was born good luck with this one pat Andrzejewski. uh man imagine if she if if you know dennis benatar was her husband ex-husband we'll talk about him in the future but the one thing he really gave her was an awesome rock name Yeah, because Andrew's just You can barely say (laughs) it. Uh, I, her album covers would be a lot different just to fit that name on there. Um, but she's, you know, Polish American, obviously, at least partially, I think she's Irish part on part one side of the family and her dad's Polish. Um, she was born in Brooklyn, moved to Lindenhurst, Long Island, where she, you know, hung out with her older buddy, Billy Joel. Um, actually she didn't know Billy Joel, but that's where he grew up too. Um, you know, and she lived in a poor middle-class background. You know, she, she, it was one of these things where a lot of her family members shared a house cause her, her mother's father had died. So the grandmother was alone. And then the grandmother had was relatively young. So she took two kids her two kids with her. So it was like aunts and uncles and all this in the same house. And, um, you know, that would kind of, uh, influence Pat on how she managed her money in the future. Cause as we'll talk about, they were pretty smart with their money, even though they're, you know, there were the usual kind of weird management dealings. They had a manager who wasn't that experienced and there were some issues there, but Pat basically, you know, has done well. And she continues to, you know, be relatively successful, even though, you know, she's not really making new music. Um, she trained. So, so basically the big thing that happened in her life is she was in fourth grade. They were having these auditions for the chorus and they wanted to hear everyone sing individually to get their range. And of course, the vocal teacher was absolutely stunned when Pat sang because she was just amazing, right? One in a million voice. And so she immediately got her together with a vocal coach and they started training. And Pat trained as what is called a mezzo soprano coloratura. And the coloratura is known for hitting these really high notes. And we'll play some clips of Pat doing that thing in the rock songs because she used this training to her advantage when she eventually would become a rock singer right and she she started training to go to juilliard because she yeah. was that exceptional right as we mentioned at the beginning she had a 3.5 vocal 3.5 octave vocal range you know there are people who have higher vocal ranges than that but i don't know if there is good a, of of a tone across that scale i mean pat can sing all across that scale and it sounds amazing no matter what note she's hitting at least in her prime and so I think... Um, Certainly from a rock
1: point of view, I mean, th- there are opera singers and stuff that are pr- more technically... Yeah, like uh,
0: Pavarotti at a bigger range than that. Well, right? I, and,
1: I, I mean, most most professional opera singers are going to be similar in their capabilities, but I mean, most are not singing this type of music and don't have that sort of nice rock tone necessarily that Pat had. So the, to your point, the combination of her technical chops and her
0: natural voice is, is a sweet spot. It's, it's absolutely works in her favor, right? Yeah. I mean, and we'll talk about this more in the history about how she kind of transitioned from that kind of clear classical singing to, into a rock voice. Right. Um, but, but, you know, so she, she was planning on going to Juilliard, but she ended up meeting this guy in high school, you know, Dennis Benatar and he ended up getting drafted in the early seventies. And so they decided to marry because of, you know, him going to Vietnam Um, and she decided to give up singing and just become a wife. You know, she's, again, this is like actually something that will come back, um, as she kind of fades from the music scene. Um, but she, you know, she was kind of very traditional in that way. Um, and he, he went to Vietnam and he, for three months and he came back and he was completely fucked up by the experience. So they didn't have a good marriage. Um, they moved around a lot because he was still in the military and they moved to Richmond, Virginia, and she worked as a bank teller. Uh, you know, and, and, but then there was one night where she said a bunch of her gay friends at the bank took her to see Liza Minnelli But what, what, a, what a straight guy can't go to a Liza Minnelli
1: concert. I guess.
0: I, I don't know. I don't know, but I that's mean. what, yeah, I don't know about that story, but you know, she, um, and she, it was kind of a revelation to her because she watched Liza Minnelli and she said, I'm way better of a singer than this. And this is what I want really have always wanted to do. So she quit her job and got a gig do as a singing waitress at this club called the Roaring 20s where you know you would um you 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 know you would you would basically just sing and bring food and she met this guy Phil Cox in there and she joined this kind of band called Coxon's Army but they were much more, they weren't rock it's like it's kind of this cabaret sound you know which is appropriate I guess with uh, you know Liza Minnelli so it right. was kind of more like musical theater kind of stuff and you can actually find and we'll link it to it on our instagram you can actually find some early tracks of this stuff it's it's not anywhere near what she would do later but there's a song called day gig that she that she did um during this time so they ended up moving to new york and her husband kind of dropped out of the military and decided to become her manager but again they weren't they didn't have a good marriage right And she was auditioning at this club called Catch a a Rising Star, which was kind of like one of these open mic things. And there were other people there. Like, you know, she met John Belushi and Chevy Chase. This was right before. This was like 74, 75, right before Saturday Night Live happened. Um, And the club owner was this guy, Rick Newman. And he um, would become her manager, right? Um, around this time, she also got a, a part in a musical called The Zinger that was written by songwriter Harry Chapman. She co-starred with uh, actress, former, you know, future actresses, Christine Lottie and Beverly D'Angelo. You know, of course, the latter of vacation fame. Right. Yeah. Um, and a movie I'm sure we'll get to, um, you know, and she uh, she would imitate a lot of singers. Uh, she would sing like Judy Garland and Barbara Streisand. And it was more that kind of thing. You know, it wasn't really she, she like
1: that family. Right. The- Right.
0: Manella, Judy Garland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess so, you know. And then her kind of turning point came when there was a Halloween contest at, at the club, and she came dressed as in this Cat Women of the Moon was a cult film from like, I think the 50s. And, you know, she came dressed in this kind of leotard with makeup, and it was kind of, you know, <laughs> new wave and punky looking. And, and she kind of stole the whole show. Right. So that's when uh, Rick Newman kind of, got the attention and was like, okay, I want to be your manager because he knew she was going to go far, right? She had an incredible voice and she had a real stage presence. Um, and she did this showcase at the club for all these record labels, right? So she she had, I, I don't know if it was at Catch a Rising Star or if it was at another club, but she had this kind of showcase to kind of, he showed her off. And that's when she met uh, the people from Chrysalis, Terry Ellis. Now, Pat wrote a book I'll be talking about during this, the, during a lot during this, I'm going to read a little bit from it too called Between a Heart and a Rock Place that's all about her, mostly about her and Neil Giraldo together. Um, And she mentions uh how, you know, all these rock books, I've read a lot of them, almost all of them have some kind of villain, right? Like in the case of Motley Crue, uh, they each wrote books in addition to The Dirt and their villain is the other members of the band, other Which than awesome, Mars, right? They the all way, hate each it. other, yeah. right? Yeah, and then Sammy <laughs> Hagar wrote a book, his villain is Eddie Van Halen,
3: right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> after he got kicked out of Van Halen, right? David Lee Ross, same thing, right? So it's like they all have a villain. Now, her villain is the record company, Chrysalis Mm. Records. And we'll talk about one of the reasons she had to use so many external songwriters is because they put her on a really aggressive schedule of releasing albums. And she also just had a lot of conflict over her image with them, which we'll talk about in the future here. But, um, you know, so she met Terry Ellis. She was signed. Uh, The first thing they did was put her in this kind of B-rate movie called Union City that starred Debbie Harry. Of Blondie fame, and Blondie was also on Chrysalis. and this was kind of a little thing they put her out there. Um, and then they, uh, you know, she uh, was trying to record, and they got a producer, uh, you know, Mike Chapman. He had produced The Sweet and other bands, and he had a, he was also a songwriter, right? He wrote a lot of songs, and he, um, you know, and and she covers one of uh, a couple of his songs on the record, including "No, You Don't," which is from Sweet, one of Sweet's records, and. Um, you know, they, they were recording the album, but something was missing. She said, so what was missing, you know, it wasn't Uh rocking. There wasn't, there wasn't this partner she needed. Uh So I'm going to read from her bio when she gets this new guitarist in, um, you know, and, and so, so the Mike Chapman hooks her up with this guy, Neil Giraldo who had played with Rick Derringer. He was like, a really good guitar really talented guitarist he was younger than her she was like at this at this point she was like what 26 27 he was 22 i um, mean he had auditioned to play with rick derringer and he beat out 200 other guys supposedly so so they wanted to bring him in as a partner for her uh to you know as a member of her band so this is the clip from her book i'm going to read this sure. uh i was talking to rick newman with my back to the door and didn't turn around immediately when I did, Buzzard was the ta- A&R guy uh, for uh, Crystals. Buzzard was talking to this guy, Neil. He stood there looking like Adonis, hair to his shoulders, <sighs> the most drop-dead gorgeous man I had ever seen in my life. Somewhere in the distance, the Hallelujah Chorus was playing. Lucky he didn't look at me in that moment because I froze in my tracks. Something shot through my entire being. Mm. Every nerve ending in my body lit up like the 4th of July. Is this every, a Harlequin book or what, what is this? And every hormone in my body went insane. <laughs> I felt like someone had hit me in the face with a two by four. I thought, girl, you have just seen the father of your children. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. So there you go. That's that's <laughs> Yeah. It is a Harlequin. It's a love story. Now it's Romeo and Juliet of rock and roll. Uh-huh. Um, So, uh, at any rate, that's when she first met Neil. So, and he was going out with Linda Blair at the time, Mm -hmm. so of exorcist fame. So they couldn't go out, but they, you know, obviously there was a chemistry there. So I mentioned Mike Chapman, the engineer of the album was Peter Coleman, who will figure in the future here. Um, obviously this album is known for heartbreaker. And if you listen to this record, it stands out way above the rest of the record. The rest of the record doesn't even sound like this heartbreaker heartbreaker is rocking. It's heavy. Um, it's just a solid rock song with an edge. The other songs are they sound almost thin, and this album is absolutely stuffed to the top with covers. Um, it's got like uh, John, you know, she does "I Need a Lover" by John Mellencamp. She does a song uh, "Don't Let It Show" by Alan Parsons Project. She does "X Rated X" by songwriter and performer um, Nick Gilder, um, and she, you know, there there are others too. No, you don't by by the Sweet. And you mentioned um, it, Weathering Heights by Kate Bush. Before. That's not on this record, though. Oh, that's on. That's on. That's on uh, the second record. Crimes. That's on Crimes, yeah, right? That's right. So that's she right. would do covers on all the yeah. records. They all yeah, have yeah. covers, but this one is like eighty percent covers. Yeah. Right. And then there's weird originals like My Clone Sleeps Alone, where she sings in a British accent. So you know, and she's when she sings these songs, like the Nick Gilder song, the um, and I'll talk more about this in my e She actually sounds a lot like the original singer. She's kind of a mimic. Um, And didn't really have her own style, except for on Heartbreaker. That really is a classic Pat Benatar style. And I really wish the rest of the album was that good. It eventually sold, you know, they, they did write a song together, her and Geraldo called We Live For Love, which is probably the second best song on the record. It's really good. Um, And record was four times platinum. Eventually reached number 12 on the charts. Um, And of course they got together. You know, they she he, he broke up with uh with uh, Linda Blair and they started dating. And Chris, she says Chrysalis was really worried about this because they had seen that Fleetwood Mac had almost been torn apart by all of the, you know, the Christine McVie and John McVie, McVie thing and the Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks going over to Fleetwood thing. And
1: by the rumors.
0: way, Keith Olsen, once again, was the
1: producer of Buckingham, Nicks and the first Fleetwood Mac album in the, in the late seventies.
0: Right. But we'll talk about that because who do you think really produced those records? Lindsay. Yeah, exactly. So we'll talk about that. But Lindsay also, okay. We'll get it. No, no, that's, that's kind of the question here, right? I'm going to get into that. So, um, and I, I agree with you partially. Okay. So anyway, uh, she mentioned in the opening clips, this is great because I wrote this down, but you found a clip of it where she's talking about, sexism right so she would go to radio stations during this time and they would be like sit on my lap like dj's they mm-hmm. would totally be sexist rock writers were very sexist i mean you heard that clip of the 2020 where they're talking about how she's a tinkerbell and a vamp i mean they would never say that about uh, about Ronnie James Dio, you know, being yeah. a deeper even though he's <laughs> just as small as Matt Benatar. Yeah. Um. So or Klaus you know, or Klaus Meine, say or, uh, uh, Klaus Meine, Right. Yeah. Okay. So so then you know she gets really popular. Um. Uh, you know, and it's like they they she was saying like they would go play clubs and there'd be lines around the block because of Heartbreaker mainly. Um. Then they release Crimes of Passion. They record Crimes of Passion, and they got producer Keith Olsen. Now, in the book, she talks about how Keith Olsen sucked. He was, he, she said. He was never there. He was having personal problems, so he was. It was funny. He would leave the production studio and come back. And I'm like, when I think of someone guy leaving the production studio and coming back, I'm thinking his nose is covered in white. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? But we don't know that. And the thing is, is and and so she says Neil Giraldo did a lot of the work that Keith Olsen didn't do. Now that's that's kind of the whole contention we're going to talk about here, and that's going to be a big elephant in the room. Now, my point is this record sounds like a fucking Keith Olsen record. It really does, you know, yeah. but it sounds also because Neil Giraldo would take over more and more and he would do a lot of different stuff with her. You know, I'm sure he was involved. I mean, you know, I, I absolutely love what he contributes to this record. I think his guitar playing is incredibly, you know, he's one of these guitar players who writes guitar solos. You can sing, Yeah, you know, it's like, they're so melodic. They're so memorable. But as to whether he did that or not, but he, they bought, they kind of battled for co-producer credit and Keith Olsen was not one to give co-producer credit. Now he did give co-producer credit on the first Fleetwood Mac album because it was, it was Keith Olsen and Fleetwood Mac. And of course rumors was Fleetwood Mac. So that was very generous of Lindsay because we know who really was behind the production of those records. You listen to the sound, especially rumors, you know, it was him. Um, but, but uh, Keith Olsen rarely gave co-producer credit, so he fought against that and he didn't get it. But supposedly, Neil was compensated for his work on there, Extra. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, let's talk about some of the songs on this record because, again, this is the record that... Uh, and we'll go more into our evals. I'll just kind of highlight some. Obviously, Hell is for Children was a Geraldo Benatar composition. It was inspired by a New York Times story about child abuse. And Jeff will go more about into that in his evaluation, but it's a really hard rocking song and it's kind of one of the standouts on the album. Hit Me With Your Best Song, uh, written by Eddie Schwartz, was originally offered to Rick Derringer during the time that Geraldo was with, with Rick Derringer and he brought it back to, um, you know, he brought it to Pat Benatar and it obviously became her signature song. It's the biggest song she ever did uh, when you, in terms of the song that people know, right? Um, you can argue that there might've been bigger singles, but this was a massive hit. Um, now, there was uh, also the chrysalis, there was the controversy with the co-producing credit. There was also a controversy with the cover. Pat wanted a band shot on the cover. And the chrysalis ended up doing this shot where she's very feminine. She's kind of staring off to the side and she's kind of in a ballet studio. You can see the kind of wooden you know, uh, thing against the wall that ballet dancers use for balance. Um, it's not a, the cover she wanted. And on the back of the cover, the band was made to dress in these contemporary fashions. It's really funny. They've got these kooky new wave clothes. And the band jokingly referred to the album as crimes of fashion mm. uh, because they, they had to dress that Very way. Clever. Um, yes. Now, this is uh, the other notable thing on this album is there's there's two covers. There's Wuthering Heights, which was a Kate Bush massive hit in England, but not a big known song here. Um, and then there's You Better Run, which was a young rascal song that I think Pat absolutely fucking owns. And I'll be playing some of that in my evaluation. And it was also the second video after the Buggles video killed the radio star played on MTV. And this would be a huge thing for Pat Benatar, right? It kind of even made her bigger. And we'll talk about some of the videos she made and both the history and our evals later, because she was a kind of a master of the form, as it were. Um, and Neil Giraldo technically was the first guitarist ever
1: played. On MTV because. Yeah, first- that's
0: true. I don't think the Buggles had. No. It, maybe they had a guitar some in there somewhere, but I think it was almost all synthesizers. Yeah. Right? Um, there you go. Didn't think of that. The album is their biggest seller of all time. It's five times platinum. Um, it never went to number one, though. It was stuck behind Double Fantasy, which had come out at the time. John Lennon's last album with Yoko Ono. Um, she won the Grammy for best uh, female rock performance. This was not an award that was ever televised, so you won't find footage of it. But she would win this award four years straight in a row. She would win it for Crimes of Passion, the album. Uh, she would win it the next year for Fire and Ice, the song. She would win it for Shadows of the Night after that. And finally, Love is a Battlefield. And she was nominated every year after that, but she didn't win. Um, the next album, Precious Time, also, I think, a really strong album. Now, this one, um, Pat Benatar and Spider, that's Nick, Nick Giraldo's uh, Neil. Neil Geraldo. I'm going to say Nick. I've always, I always script names. Neil Geraldo's uh nickname, right. With spelled with the Y. I don't know what that's all about. Um, I don't know if you found anything about that, um, no. but at any rate, he, uh, they broke up because they were worried about kind of being working together and being together. So they broke up for a time, but they eventually got back together and, you know, within six months they were married. Uh, they decided to get married in Hawaii. Keith Olsen was, they brought back Keith Olsen, but this time ne- Neil Giraldo got co-producer credit on this record. So um, evidently he did stuff, you know, mm-hmm. uh, this record is most known for the hits fire and nice uh, and promises in the dark. It's her only number one album. And it was two times platinum. Uh, now during this time, Neil Giraldo also produced other artists. He had, pr- he had worked on Jesse's girl. So this is a kind of point in his favor with this argument, because I do think Rick Springfield stuff sounds a lot like this. But Um, I actually think that there's controversy about whether he produced
1: those songs or he played on them. I found evidence that said that he did not actually produce those Rick Springfield songs. He was just a guitar and bass player for those.
0: Okay. So, again, in your eval, you can go over in detail about your argument on the crimes of Neil Giraldo, as we we say. So, so yeah, so maybe he didn't. Now, he supposedly did work on John Waite's album, Ignition. Produced the song Change, one of my all-time favorite kind of AOR songs ever. I really love that song. Uh, And they also played the Us Festival. This is something no one talks about. This was the Us Festival, the kind of junior Us Festival, the first one, Us 82. Not as good as the Us 83, and there's less footage. You can find the footage for this whole show, but it's not, the sound isn't great. They sound pretty good. They mess up. They played um, Treat Me Right, which I was going to include, the live version but they kind of fuck it up in the middle of the song. They actually kind of are off time. It's funny. Uh, the band is mostly pretty good. I should mention the band too. You know, on rhythm guitar, we had uh, Scott Sinclair Sheets, who's also a songwriter. He wrote co-wrote a couple of the songs. We had Myron Grombacher, Grunk- uh, who's a great drummer. I think he's he's not like a virtuosic kind of Neil Perk guy, but he's really solid. And I really like his playing on these records. Um, and then you have Roger Capp on bass. And I forgot to mention, Jeff had pointed out in the in, in our history notes that he had actually played uh, with Coxon's army so pat brought him all the way from there and then of course neil duraldo right so and then they would have a keyboard players later you know because the albums would become more synth dominated these albums are very guitar dominated uh with some keyboards right uh but i reckon we'll link to uh in our instagram we'll link to that uh us festival set because it's really cool there's some cool stuff and pat sounds amazing live i think she still sounds really good live um get nervous came next that was They brought back Peter Coleman. That's who they wanted to produce the other albums or help with Neil Duraldo probably because of engineering side. You know, Neil might have had an ideas guy, but he wasn't an engineer, right? So they brought him back and Neil Duraldo co-produced. This is a lot more synth dominated, a lot more poppy. Uh, This album is known mainly for Shadows of the Night and it's fantastic video uh, that features actors Judge Reinhold from, of course, Fast Times fame and Bill Baxton. Um, and it's all a World War II video where Pat is a pilot and fights Nazis. It's, uh, we're definitely going to link to that in the notes uh, or the uh, Instagram. There was an album cover controversy again. The back photo is of Pat in a straight jacket, kind of being her arms are being pulled by the band and they're all in the corner. And she looks really kind of anemic and with face makeup. She wanted that to be the front cover, but they, the, the label again refused. She talks a lot about in the book how mad she was about this. She also talks about how these this every nine months they had to release an album. So they were constantly on this schedule of album tour, album tour, and she was getting exhausted by this and she wanted a break. Um, but that's partially why they use so many external songwriters, because they just had to come up with material very quickly. Um, Shadows of the Night was written by an external songwriter too. Uh, this album had a couple other hits. It, it went platinum. It's number four. Uh, I think this album is a little weaker than the last two, but it's probably stronger than the debut it's got some really good tracks i'm going to play kind of one of the dark horse tracks on the album i really like it's more like kind of very keyboard power pop um you know it's very keyboard dominated there's still some guitar hard rock guitar it's still got it's foot it one foot in the rock side one foot in the pop side uh they would follow that up with live from earth this is so they could kind of get a break right from constantly recording so they had a live album uh this is um uh mainly known for having the song love is a battlefield on it, which was a huge change for Pat Benatar. It's a very synth dominated song. This was the result of supposedly Neil Giraldo changing the song. It was originally written by, uh, Holly Knight and Mike Chapman, I believe. And it, um, it was originally a ballad and he changed it and the songwriter originally hated it, but when it became a big giant hit, uh, they really liked it. Right. And, uh, You know, Neil Giraldo was responsible for this sound, and it, you know, supposedly it was really influential. Like, Pat talks about how it might have influenced Boys of Summer, even though melodically that song is different, the tempo is very similar. But I would argue maybe this song was actually influenced by Peter Gabriel's Shock the Monkey, because if you listen to the tempo of that and the way the rhythms are, I think it's very similar to this. We need our mashup king, uh, Bill McClintock, to, to see if he can put those together, although that would be child's play to him. Uh, it also includes another studio track called Lipstick Lies. Now, this album is, is, is supposedly live tracks were overseen by Neil Giraldo. So this is a point against him because I think this live album is crappy. I think it sounds really bad. I think there's much better clips. There's a early 80s bootleg from recorded in San Francisco. Um, that's actually really awesome. That sounds way better than this. I just don't think the sound the sound is that good. I mean, the band sounds good. She sounds good. They also have a keyboard player in the mix that I think is not doesn't service the rock songs very well. So I'm not a fan of this. But it was platinum. It did go to number thirteen. And Pat once again was nominated for a Grammy. And Love Is a Battlefield is massive. And Jeff will talk more about the video, which is iconic. Yeah. Uh, in his about that was followed by Tropico. Uh, This was completely produced by Neil Giraldo, and it's very pop. It's very synth. Pat was pregnant at this time with her first daughter, Haley. Uh, She says it helped her voice. She says somehow the pregnancy, the hormones or something made her be able to do things vocally she couldn't do. This album is mainly known for the mega hit We Belong. Uh, I think her vocals on that are incredible, but it's more of a pop song. She was actually nominated for a pop Grammy for this, not a rock Grammy, which goes to show you her transition. Uh, it was a big seller. It was platinum, number 14. Uh, it had two singles, the Ooh Ooh song, which is awful. I think the album as a whole sucks, and I'll talk about that more in my E-Bow. Uh, But it was still a big hit. And then, you know, Seven the Hard Way or 7th album uh, was rushed again, and this was completely produced by Neil Giraldo. And by Tropico in this album, he's fully on in synthland. This is not rock. This is pop. And um, with, with the exception of Invincible, he did not produce that. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. He didn't produce the biggest hit, but he did produce "Sex as a Weapon."
3: Yeah,
0: uh, which again is a dubious distinction, in my opinion. I yeah. do not think this song has aged well. Pat even doesn't talk that enthusiastically about this album. She said it was too rushed for them to fully, uh, you know, realize the songs and. You know, you can obviously hear the filler. I think both this and Tropico are full of filler. I think the singles are kind of notable, but I'm not a fan of Sex is a Weapon. And this album was her first album not to be platinum. It only hit number 26 and was gold. You could obviously, she, you know, she was kind of overtaken by family life, and I think she was kind of getting burnt out on the career, and she was sick of the record company interference and her husband not getting credit and all this. Um, so it took a while for the next album to come out, come out Wide Awake in Dreamland. They were, they were happy with this album. It's kind of a mix of rock and pop, and it had the song All Fired Up, which was a pretty big hit. Again, it only went gold, only to number 28. Um, at this point, the chrysalis was falling apart. They would eventually be acquired by EMI. Terry Ellis would depart the label. They weren't getting a lot of attention, and she was, frankly, I think, ready to retire yeah. uh, for the most part. Um, I think she was really burnt out on the music industry. She was into being a parent uh, into our domestic life with Neil. Um, you know, and the tour was a disaster, I think because her popularity was waning. They, they didn't sell out the, you know, they were selling out all the time every year and the attendance was lower and it was just on a downturn. And, uh, so they kind of took a break before the next album. The next album, true love is kind of a blues. It's called this jump blues, uh, kind of blues and it didn't do really well. Again, it was gold, but it barely scraped that, uh, you know Goldmark, on uh, and um she followed that up with an album called gravity's rainbow which was returned to kind of aor but again very synthy very long album a lot of the 90s albums like wide awake and you know the late 80s and 90s with the advent of cds albums just got too fucking long and boring and it's a real problem and you can hear it on this there's really not much to recommend to any of these albums um you know and so she basically they were kind of playing shows here and there, you know, they toured with Ario, Speedwagon and Sticks. you know, one of these package tours uh, that kind of the bands of the eighties that used to command arenas on their own had to get together and play places like Kanocti. That's where my uncle saw them. Uh, and she had a second daughter, Hannah in 1996. And then they left Chrysalis at the end uh, and they were kind of produced a couple of their own albums in a and go and go was produced in 2003. This is the last album she ever did. And she's since done like, toured you know she's been touring and it's kind of an oldie show really yeah um in kind of acoustic go is more rocking but they're really you know one of the albums are really boring there's not any real uh, memorable songs on there like their old songs uh maybe they needed third-party songwriters more uh because they wrote their own songs and they're not very good um and she did some tv appearances she was on the young and the restless that you can find those we'll definitely link to those on the youtube because they're funny because they do some acting her and neil and then they're on Dar- the show Dharma and Greg, the sitcom as well, which is also funny. And since then, they've been touring. You know, they have these business ventures. He did some health nutrition thing for a while. They have this three-chord bourbon. Whenever you see a video of him now, he's got his little three-chord bourbon logo. You know, all these fucking yeah. celebrities have their bourbon and their vodka and their hot sauce. And <laughs> how much they had to do with it or not is another thing. You know, they basically get someone to make Their tequila. It their label. You know. Right, their tequila. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Moss tequila, Sammy would say. So that's basically where we are now. I I just want to say that this is July 2022 and there was just a show of Pat Benatar a week ago in Albany that you can find on YouTube and we'll probably link to it. You can hear how good they still sound. You know, it's not Myron Grombacher is on drums, but it's her and Neil and they play the old hits and you know, she can't hit the high notes, but she still sounds pretty good. So that's, that's the history. So Jeff, why don't you go into your eval?
1: Yeah. Okay. So first of all, I just want to talk about Pat's voice. I mean, we covered it mostly, but it's it's awesome. It's really compelling. Um, not only from her technical ability, there are singers who who have technical chops but whose voice isn't really that good. I'll give you an example: someone whose voice I just cannot stand is Natalie Maines of the you know the Dixie Chicks. She's a good oh, yeah. singer, but her voice is just really grating. It's it's really I can't
0: take it um, more than a little a little bit. So, or even someone like Mariah Carey, who has a way bigger vocal range than Pat. She's like five octaves or something yeah. ridiculous, like an incredible vocalist. But who cares? Yeah. The I, music's I terrible. And okay. it's like the, the voice is just a, a it's like a vocal stunt, you know, whereas it's Pat generic, does some yeah. of that. Pat does some of that stunt shit, but it serves the music. You know, she doesn't just do it for nothing. It's well, actually. Yeah
1: yes. And the the quality, the tonal quality of her voice is outstanding. You know what I mean? So it's, it's both. She has a really nice to listen to voice and she's technically uh, proficient and it's not a common, you know, combination really um, out there. Um, All right. So Neil Giraldo. (laughs) So what I want to talk about Neil Giraldo, as I'm going to say some things that are maybe, you know, not so great, but I I want to point out that it's not having anything to do and I'll talk more about this his guitar playing or anything like that and it's more about the kind of recent insistence on her being known as Benatar Geraldo instead of Pat Benatar and touring that way and you know claiming that that should have been the how it was all along and so forth and so on so I'll keep reminding people of that I'm not you know down on him you know it, it, for for his uh, you know abilities or anything but more of kind of the recent um, grab that he should have like co-billing credit uh, in in that kind of sense. So I want to say that in the opening clip, you hear, you know, Pat righteously telling off people who don't appreciate Geraldo, even somebody might approach her and said, why is he getting co-billing on the marquee? And her quote was, because every song you love and listen to was created by him, asshole, was her answer to the to this person. Right. And, and I take some... Umbridge with that, which I'll get into here. Um, If you listen to Pat and Neil, tell it Neil seemingly has more to do with her success than even she does. You know, which is which is just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, her
0: book is basically the the whole book. That's the whole premise of everything. Yeah, I mean, um,
1: look, they, they've been together for forty years. She views him as very critical to her success in her career and life, and they have kids and grandkids even at this point, and that's great. Congratulations! It's not very common certainly in the, in the entertainment business, in the, in the rock business. And, you know, again, wonderful. But I do find that the desire that they have, this sort of almost revisionist history desire to have him out there co-building with her is pretty pathetic and lame, really. Because really, for, for the most part, um, people know her. She is the star. And it's great that he contributed a lot to that. But th- we'll go into this. There's a lot of other people out there who are solo artists. who had whole teams behind them, very well-known people um, behind them, supporting them, producing them, co-writing with them. And it's OK that, you know, Pat's the star or, you know, some of these other people are the I, star. I just think that the the entire, um, you know, history of this is just
0: a little wonky. Do you uh, think that's partially because she's female and he's male? Do you think there, that plays into it at all? Per- perhaps. I think that,
1: you know, really the entire branding of Pat from the beginning. And again, she's in the opening clip. You heard her saying. Yeah, she insists
0: on it. It's not him. As far as we know, it's not him pushing her to say.
1: Agreed. Like I said, Pat is the one who's most vocal about this. Who knows what's happening behind closed doors? It's really relevant to me. But Pat is insisting on this. And I sort of look at this as like Pat's the star. It's Pat's voice. It's Pat's band. Pat should be out there, and, and maybe she's always been uncomfortable with that, and that's her issue, you know, potentially, but I don't know. There's a lot of other people who contributed to her success, and I, and I want to talk about that a little bit here, too. So, including, by the way, Myron, Roger Caps, Scott Sheets, you know, these other people who are in her band who, were, who um, maybe weren't as prominent on the producing side, but were just as important in producing the sound that you admire and you admire on those songs. And I want to, you know, here at CFX, you know, we're cool, you know, we're cool, we're cool. We we understand these things, but uh, we also want to give credit where credit's due, but maybe point some skepticism where it's warranted. And so here's a little homework assignment, right? Which is, you know, Pat, I want to go back to what Pat said, which is all the songs that you love and listen to, Neil created. Because that's what she said. And I take a great deal of umbrage with that because... Number one, let's talk about those songs. I'm going to go through the songs that I think are on that list. You know, number one is Heartbreaker. You talked about that. They didn't write that. Uh, Jeff Gill and Cliff Wade wrote that, and the producers of that were Mike Chapman and Peter Coleman, at least according to uh, Wikipedia and right. other sources. Okay, hit me with your best shot. Didn't write that. Eddie Schwartz did. Keith Olsen produced that, and we can debate whether he was there or not, or smoke, you know, smoking weed or doing coke, whatever you do it. Treat Me Right, um, she co-wrote with Doug Lubhan and Keith Olson has the producing credit. Fire and Ice, she co-wrote with Tom Kelly and, the, and uh, Scott Sheets in, a, in her band. And Neil Geraldo co-produced this with Keith, Keith Olsen. Love of the Battlefield, uh, Mike Chapman and Holly Knight wrote that. Uh, Peter Coleman produced that. Neil Geraldo has co-producing credit. Good, good. Sex is a Weapon, they didn't write that. Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly did. Mike Chickard... Chicarelli was a producer. Neil Giraldo was a co-producer. All Fired Up, she co-wrote with Myron in the band and somebody named Karen uh, Tolhurst, and the producer was Ken Forsey. Hell is for Children, they wrote with Roger Capps, the bassist, and Keith Olsen was the credited producer there. Um, you Better Run, they didn't write or produce. Promises in the Dark, they co-wrote solely between the two of them. Keith Olsen, Neil Giraldo were the co-producers. Shadows of the Night, they didn't write. We Belong, they didn't write. Invincible, they didn't write. I Need a Lover, John Mellencamp wrote. They didn't write Precious Time. They didn't write Little Too Late. They didn't write Looking for a Stranger. Neil Giraldo um, produced a couple of those, including Promises and Shadows and We Belong. But my point is that I think that's really unfair to all of these people. Um, Say all the songs you care, he, he created. He did bullshit. Bullshit! All these other people were a part of that creation process. Now he he played a role, certainly in producing maybe half of those or writing or producing half of those, but really, as far as the writing of the songs go, you know, he didn't really have much to do with any of the hits. I just want to say, other than uh, "Hells for Children" and, and "Promises in the Dark." Now, look, um, I I I think that he did write and co-write a lot of songs that were on her albums. So if you want to say, well, he didn't he did contribute and in her mind and others mind, if you look at the total total sum of the tracks, yeah, he wrote a lot of those songs, but a lot of those songs, you don't give two shits about listener. I promise you that. And if you really want to listen to the quality of some of these, they vary quite a bit. I mean, for every hell is for children or what you think of that song or even promises in the dark, there's an evil genius song, right? Which uh, maybe isn't so great. Right. So, um, as a, as a writer, as a songwriter, I don't think he really contributed much for the big hits, is my point. As a producer, it's a different story. I, I think, depending on, you know, who you believe in, in the, the Pat Benatar story about Keith Olsen's presence or capabilities, or Neil Girala was really the, you know, the guy behind the scenes. Um, You know, here's what I'll say. I wasn't, first of all, I wasn't there, so I have no idea, but... I'm sure, you know, he definitely had a role, played a big role in her sound, did a lot of stuff. It wasn't just sitting around reading comic books in the studio. But I I do want to say that before Pat Benatar, Keith Olsen produced a lot of, you know, huge bands. Fleetwood Mac, uh, the biggest Foreigner album, right, Double Vision um, and, and stuff. And then after Pat Benatar, Keith went on to produce... Sammy Hagar, the Scorpions, Rick Springfield, Heart, 38 Special, Joe Walsh, White Snake, Santana, Ozzy, Night Ranger.
0: On and on and on and on. Okay? Yeah, and the the White Snakey album he produced is the Whites it's the it's the 1987 self-titled which is their blockbuster album. Right. Whatever you think about them, it's like a huge record. Right. And and the other thing I'll say about this, might as well just get this over with, is yeah, whether Neil Giraldo had a had a hand in in uh, Precious Time or Crimes of Passion. It's not like those don't sound very Keith Olseny. They do. Yeah. That's the thing that kind of. It's like you know Keith. he also produced a Journey. I think Departure and Infinity, or you know some of the Journey records, right? And um, didn't did he produce the Foreigner
1: records also? I know he did the one in the late a double vision one. The one okay. Well, that...
0: there you go. Yeah. The second the second Foreigner album. Yeah. That is that is so much like these records. You know, so it's suspect to me that he didn't have any involvement, but whether, obviously, Neil, either the the record label was caving to Pat Benatar, which it seemed like they rarely did, according to her, or, uh, and I kind of like that she went for that. You know, I admire her as a business person and going, he needs co-producer credit. You know, she's standing up for him. She's using her power to to actually go against this huge record company. And I kind of like that. But at the same time, I'm like, I can't think that Keith Keith Olsen didn't have some involvement because those records sound like other shit he did. Of course. You know, it's like, it sounds like it. But, you know, that's her contention. And I kind of like that she went to bat for him. You know, um but she didn't go to back then she didn't say you know this band is really
1: a duo it's really like robert plant and jimmy page which made me roll my eyes sorry yeah
0: i mean i don't she doesn't talk about in the book whether she asked chrysalis i doubt by the time she became huge they would let her change the name you know she was under a certain contract right she had to produce a certain number of records it had to be under pat you know she was they were known as pat benatar even though she tries to make the case that they're really a band you know, at least, and the band stayed together for a long time. I mean, they stayed together until most, I, there, were, there were a couple members like Caps and Sinclair Sheets that came and went, but Grumbacher was there for, you know, up until the 90s. There's lots of um, people who are known for being a band, like uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers.
1: Mike Campbell right. was a huge part of that, wrote a lot of those songs, did a lot of production, was, you know, the kind of right-hand band of Tom Petty. He didn't run around saying, well, I think it should be Tom Petty, Mike Campbell and the Heartbreakers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? So, so anyway, look, I just, and and here's what I'm judging this on. Like, no doubt that in Pat's mind and Neil's mind or some combination, they, he had a lot to do with her success, her sound, great, fine, again. But what Keith Olsen went on to do for, as a producer and what, you know, Geraldo, if he was such a scary talent, he could have been producing other groups and other people. He produced John Waite, that, maybe that one thing, and then nothing else really of note. Um... On Rick Springfield, he worked on that with Keith Olsen, by the way, um, and he, um, you know, played guitar and bass. I think on Jesse's uh, Jesse's Girl and um, the Sammy Hagar song. What is that? I've done everything for you. I think. Is, yeah, yeah. Is the other one. Yeah. So, so anyway, I I just want to point that out. I'm a little skeptical, and just based on what happened after that, you know, all in all, I I think that he is a, he's a fine guitarist. Um, he played guitar on all the hits that we talked about. And look, even if he produced all of the things and Keith Olsen was, you know, off in the closet, you know, doing whatever he was doing. And Neil Geraldo was at the board doing all this stuff. Great. But why not call, you know, you could also call the, the current tours Benatar Olsen or Benatar Grombacher. I, and my take is essentially how many people in the world are making their way to Kanocti? to see Neil Giraldo? Yeah. The answer is zero. Nobody is. And for 99.9% of the people, they want to hear Pat's voice singing those songs. That's it. They know it. I mean, everybody knows it. Why can't he just stay in the background with all the other people who contributed to her success? Um, You know, and it's not just the musical people, her manager, her, you know, blah, 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 blah. I I just, I don't know. It just rubs me the wrong way that, that, this is now kind of a revisionist thing. Well, it was always like Benatar Geraldo all along. It's like, eh. Even if it was, you know, that's why can't why can't it, people just appreciate the fact that he contributed to it and she's the name and she's the star and she's the voice. That is, I think, what people know. And look, maybe this is what I'm about to say is 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 really not very generous. But like, without Neil, Pat would have been a star. Yeah. Maybe not to the same degree or a different path or different songs sounding different ways. But without Pat, Neil Giraldo would have been teaching guitar to the Iron Sheik on Land of a Thousand Dances on the World Wrestling Federation album that Rick Derringer produced. Like, he's a good guitarist. There's a thousand good guitarists. Sorry. There just is... The other thing I want you to mention is, you know, Barb's comment. Uh, oh, another... yeah. So
0: we were talking about this. Uh, I was talking about this with my wife because Jeff kept bringing this up. And this was kind of the angle we were going to explore for this episode in a way, um, or at least a big part of it. I'm going to talk about some other stuff, too. But um, but yeah, she was like, well, Shania Twain didn't go on tour as Twain Mutt, yeah. you know, for Mutt Lang, even though those songs are Mutt Lang songs. Like, they sound like Def Leppard, countrified. They sound exactly like Hysteria. I mean, you could have, man, I feel like a woman covered by Def Leppard, (laughs) and it wouldn't sound that different, right? I mean, Muttling is such an over... And even Def Leppard, you could say they weren't Lang Leppard or Mutt Leppard. Right. You know, even though his influence... Or Or You could say Pink Floyd, The Wall. Pink Floyd, The Wall is much more of a Bob Ezrin album than it is a, a Pink Floyd album. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it doesn't even sound like fucking Pink Floyd. It sounds totally different, right? It sounds like fucking Alice Cooper to me, like a lot of it, not all of it. Comfortably numb is very, very David Gilmore. Right. But there's a lot of stuff on there that sounds very different than typical Pink Floyd. But, you know, Bob Ezrin has a huge influence on every artist he works with. Right. He's one of these producers, but you don't give him co-credit. So even right. if Neil Giraldo had all this influence as a producer and we might argue that he definitely could have, um, you know, but they're also not married to them. Although Mutt Lang is the good example, right? Because he yeah. was married to her. Absolutely. Right? He was married to her. So that is the good example. So yeah, I get that point.
1: Yeah. And and look, I I think that they, they're they running around trying to stump for his legacy credibility. I'm not buying it. And mostly, I don't think most people care. Or nobody will. Nobody cares, really. And nobody will care. This is their thing. And it's just, I don't know, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. That's
0: but, something all artists do as they get older. It's like, okay, I'm done doing new music or contributing new music. So it's time to write the book. It's time to seal the legacy. Right? Yeah. And that's just what every human being. I mean, Bill Clinton's tried to do that for decades to get over his stupid mistakes in the 90s. Right. Yeah. He's tried to paint his, himself as this great guy. And and it's like, it, you know, the presidents Nixon was doing that. He was on the talk show circuit in the in the 80s trying to get rid of the legacy of Watergate and make himself a foreign policy genius, right? Because of China and salt too, and all that. So all these people do, that's a human thing that people do. So that's what they're doing. Yeah. You know, they're trying to submit the sure. legacy. I agree.
1: I think just in the final analysis, like absolutely. He was a big contributor to her success, but so were all the other people I mentioned. Um, and, you know, he could say, well, I wrote mo-, even maybe technically he wrote, or they co-wrote most of their songs. Yeah. But, you know, I think the record company was basically like, you know, hey, do we have Holly Knight writing us some hits on this album? We're good then. Whatever else you want to put on there, yeah, you know, kind of thing. Um, so anyway, that's the idea with this. I, I just it just rubs me the wrong way. Pat's the star. It's Pat's talent. It's her voice. It's those songs that I admire. And most of those songs, maybe he contributed to the sound or the arrangement, but they were not written by him or her or solely by them. So anyway, let's talk about the songs. Uh, Hit Me With Your Best Shot. I I think uh, everybody knows this song, but let me just play a little clip of it. So, you know, I was this ripping Neil a new one for a while, but there's an example of his guitar playing, and it's great. It makes the it's song. It's fucking awesome yeah. solo.
0: I love that. absolutely love that solo. Yeah, so yeah. there you
1: go. Um, of course, they didn't write this song. A guy named Eddie Schwartz did. And let me play a clip of um, him talking about uh, the song and some of the lyrics. I, I do. Some of the lyrics are a little, you know, cringeworthy and funny in retrospect. But, you know, amusing for what it is. You're a real tough cookie with a long history of breaking little hearts like the one in me. Before I put another notch in my lipstick case, <laughs> you better make sure to put me in my place.
0: Uh, okay. They must have changed the lyrics because I can't imagine Rick Derringer singing those lyrics.
1: Yeah, they um, did. <laughs> yeah.
0: Eddie talks yeah. about that.
1: So here, here's, oh, okay. here's Eddie Schwartz.
3: So I remember after maybe my second or third time, you know, punching pillows and, and yelling about all the problems I was having. Um, I stepped out after the therapy session onto uh, the porch. It was a, It was done in a house... Uh, and I was standing on the porch and I just had this epiphany hit me with your best shot. It just kind of came out of nowhere. And I remember getting very excited. I thought, wow, that there's something there.
1: Now, uh, Eddie's talking about how the, the genesis of this song came from a therapy session or series of sessions he had where, um, you know, during a difficult time in his life, and one of the things was like hitting pillows and screaming and things like that, and that was sort of the inspiration uh, for this song. He goes on to to talk about uh, you know Pat and, and Neil uh, getting a hold of it.
3: The only thing that's changed over the years is when Pat Benatar recorded it. She she switched, so it was written from a male perspective. The lipstick case line had to be flipped uh, for it to work for. Uh, for a female singer. So Pat did a great job. And of course, yeah, Pat and Neil and everybody involved in the Benatar version did an amazing job of it and took it from that and, it, and completed its transition from being this little folk idea to being uh, a full-out rock anthem.
1: There you go. He even gives awesome. Neil some credit there. Um, anyway, it's a great song. It's obviously one of the big hits, but one that they did not write. Um, okay, Love is a Battlefield. I'm going to talk about this a little bit here. So uh, if you don't know the song or haven't heard it in a while, let me give you a little taste of it.
2: We are young. We are young.
1: So I wanted to play that clip just because at the end where she screams, we are strong. I mean, that's just an example of the power of her voice and really the best of Gee, her. Gee, what,
0: what decade could that have song come from? I, um, <laughs> I, mean, it, I don't think there's anything more 80s sounding than that fucking song. Well, <laughs> yeah. yes,
1: that's true. And on that note, we have another installment of uh, our video breakdown. Uh, all, segment right, all right, all right. Back by popular demand after the Billy Joel episode, um, by popular demand. No one's actually demanding it, but yeah. we, we, we just have to do this. All right. So if you are not familiar with the Love is a Battlefield uh, 1980 special video here, this is where you pause and go and watch the video. Of course, we'll put it in the show notes also on our Instagram site. But this video is Absolutely incredible, and by incredible, I mean horrific, bad, mockworthy, and amazing, all at the same time. Mm. Um, if, do you remember this just off the top of your head, uh, Slope? They, I remember the boob-shaking dancing. Yes. That's what I remember. Well, that was used to great effect, and I'll explain why. So um, the video opens with uh, Pat rocking her uh, trademark spandex look, walking through the mean streets of a red-light district with flashbacks to her proverbial ride on the bus to the big city. You know, something's gone wrong in Pat's life. We don't quite know yet, but we're about to find out. You know, a a 30-ish-year-old Pat is playing a teenage girl in this video who's leaving home (laughs) due to a conflict with Dad, and and we even get uh, the Dad character screaming at her, you leave this house now, you can just forget about coming back. You know, and Pat basically uh, gives him the finger... Bids farewell to mom and pops and little brothers and and heads to the to the big city. We go back to her looking dejected, walking through various cityscapes, being eyeballed by various creeps interspersed with dad looking morose as he sleepswalk through life. You know, his little girl's gone, having run off to the big city doing God knows what. Though you know, he probably knows what she's going to wind up doing.
0: I think Madonna must have seen this uh, for Papa Idol. Preach. preach. It's sure. very influenced by this with the Danny Aiello performance. I it's think. exactly, yeah.
1: exactly. I was going to mention that,
0: too. Um, Pat eventually here in the video
1: makes her way to work, which appears to be some sort of brothel complete with an ethnic looking pimp with gold teeth uh, leering at the camera. So Pat is in the in the brothel rocking back and forth, displaying the early 80s goods, uh, as it were, with some dude. Shoulder taps are for action. I guess at this point in time in our in our uh, cultural history uh, here, a real brothel and its implication was a little too hardcore for MTV. So euphemistically, this brothel with all these girls and these dudes paying is for some sort of dime dancing parlour, where the dudes are paying top dollar to slow dance with, you know, dead eyed girls uh, you know, in this place, and they wow, show... Tina
0: Turner private dancer, another yep. input this, this dude this video is already a groundbreaking it is you know, a video private yeah. dancer
1: dancer for money, although very yep. clearly in the video it was not a strip club, so i it, oh, it's yeah. it 's a brothel you know pretty much hard to hard to question that, but anyway, they show Pat kind of looking dead eyed and longing in the distance, questioning the decisions in her life as you know she Slow dances with this guy, which in reality would be maybe a horizontal dancing, uh, a little different. Yeah. Um, Anyway, Pat is then seen writing letters to home, uh, to her little brother from some girls only dormitory. Um, The only thing missing are Hildy and and Buffy. Right. Uh, Missing from the from the background there. Yeah. Writing, you know, letter to her little brother who's who reads it, you know, Dear Timmy. Whoring in the city, not going as well as expected. Bob, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we find Pat back at work, world weary, shooing away potential customers. She can't take it anymore. But then Pat, this is where we get into uh, the part that you're talking about, slip. Um, Pat uh, uh, witnesses a um, the gold tooth pimp chasing one of the girls through the brothel, and she's shouting at him, "Leave me alone." As she flees away, and Pat can't take it. She feels compelled to intervene, which she does by assembling all the brothel ladies and invoking the power of the shoulder-shaking boob dance to make the aggressive pimp cower into submission. <laughs> the, the, the pimp is confused. He doesn't understand what has been wrought, but apparently he gets won over by the shoulder-shaking boob dance and the awesome display of, of grill power and starts to feel it. He starts grooving to Pat's moves, Uh, mirroring what she's doing, but past having none of it. And she throws a drink in his face because that'll show him. Um, Feeling empowered, then, you know, the gals, of course, uh, shoulder shake their way out out of the brothel into the streets where they feel their oats until the sun comes up. At that point, she bids uh, the empowered, but now, let's say, presumably now unemployed fellow sex workers goodbye and heads off into the sunset. So, um... I think that this video is going to stand the test of time. I think it It already has,
0: dude. It already has. I mean, this song is like next to hit me with your best shot is our most iconic song. It's the second most views on Spotify. It's like millions, you know, tens of millions of views or streams. Um, And I do think that the video has been brought up by millennials many times as, as as a, you know, kind of nostalgic thing for the 80s. It's definitely a landmark. I, I it's mean, pretty amazing. When are we going to see a, mob, a flash mob video
1: on TikTok of the shoulder shaking pimp dance? Oh,
0: dude, that has to have been done, right? I mean, we should, we should if we find one, we'll put it on the Instagram, let's yeah. just say, because I would be shocked if this hasn't been done on some level.
1: Yeah, but I, I want to I see it where they're actually getting a real pimp to counter in submission from. Oh, yeah. That would be nice. Uh, you know, that show them what's up. All right. So there you go. If you have not seen this video or you haven't seen it for a long time, please take a look. It's worth uh, revisiting. All right, real quick here. Hell is for Children. We talked about this a little bit. I want to play a a clip. Again, great example of her her rock voice and powerful singing.
0: It's really good. Singing on this is incredible.
1: It is. Um, The lyrics uh, may be a little controversial or questionable. Like you mentioned, it's based on some stories in the New York Times about child abuse. Obviously not a topic for any kind of mocking, but more of that um, all this righteous rock anger and these after-school special lyrics are just a little (laughs) much for me. Um, I see what they're trying to do here. It's a great song. I mean, very catchy. Still one of the most played hits. But the lyrics sometimes just make me cringe a little bit. I gotta say. Um, Shadows of the Night. I you mentioned this earlier. I love this song. Here's a quick. It's so catchy. This song is so
0: such an earworm. (laughs)
1: I love this song, the vocal uh, triple tracked, I think, at one point opening uh, vocal is something I heard and it's something Neil Giorello claimed that he came up with. Or And so great. That's awesome. Way to go, Neil. I guess Peter Coleman was sleeping on a job that day, but you know, way to take advantage of the moment, Neil. Mm-hmm. Way to go. And lastly, I want to play Invincible, which they didn't write or produce, um, but it's something I think she's very associated with. The, this is from a movie called The Legend of Billie Jean, um, which starred uh, Helen Slater um, back in the day in the in the eighties.
0: Which Supergirl uh, also played Supergirl su- in one of the and, worst uh, super superhero movies ever. Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, she played Supergirl. She was also in um, what was that movie with Danny DeVito and Judge Reinhold. Uh, with Beth Midler, what's the name of that? Like uh, Ruthless People. Ruthless People. Yeah, oh, yeah. She was she was in that. She was in Secret of My Success. I have to say, I definitely had a crush on her back in the in the eighties. She was super hot back. And uh, anyway, Legend of Billy G. Not a great movie. Very cringeworthy. In fact, it has uh, really really bad dialogue. But it also stars uh, Lisa Simpson as a character called Pooter. Oh might, wow! Want to check that out? But. Anyway, I want to play a clip of this and and I want to talk about this song. So here you go. Here's a clip of Invincible. So why did I play that particular part? I played that because a 100% ripped off Duran Duran, The Reflex. Go listen to The Reflex. It's that song. Again, I, this is not uh, anything that has to do with uh, Geraldo or Pat. They didn't write it or produce it. But Mike Chapman, who was the credited producer, owes Ian Little, Alex Sadkin, and Nick Rhodes and the rest of Duran Duran a producing credit. They- also,
0: Niall Rodgers, who did the kind of remix that made the song a huge hit where he's yeah. like, re-re-re-reflex. Yeah, yeah. 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 Now Rogers. So there you go.
1: I mean, that's just shameless. I still like the song, but they just completely ripped that off. Anyway, overall, I'm uh, on the greatest hits. I'm modestly long. I, I mean, I think Pat and these songs will be part of the eighties canon forever. Um, and so to the degree that eighties music, uh, music comes in and out of Vogue, the track and the value of all this stuff, the tracks will go up and down accordingly. Um, I don't think there's ever going to be a future generation who becomes suddenly in love with the deep track cuts or the undiscovered evil genius of Geraldo or anything like that. So, you know, there you go. I, I think, um, modestly long, I, Pat is, an was still is, you know, an incredible talent, incredible voice. And I think the hits will uh, continue on forever and I'll listen to them. I, I enjoy them all as I've said. So there you go. Handing over to you.
0: All right. So, yeah, again, you started out talking about Pat's voice. I kind of said some things about that already. Uh, I know I'm not an expert on vocals and vocal tone and all this and what makes, uh, um, you know, a great singer. But I liken Pat a lot to Freddie Mercury because Freddie Mercury is kind of the singer people go to as the greatest rock singer ever. I don't know if he is. He's one of them. But he's got that same kind of tone where he has a wonderful vocal tone, but he also can rock. You know, he's a great rock singer, just one of the best ever. And I kind of like put her in that same class. Um, And I think this goes beyond gender. I think she just is her. And I feel like what I'm going to say about Pat Benatar is I feel like her potential was never really met. Um, You know, she has moments where it was met, but I feel like she kind of went my my kind of uh, overview of Pat Benatar is going to be that she went into pop too soon and didn't kind of push the rock uh, as much as could have been pushed. Um, you know, uh, and that's kind of going to be my overall opinion. But I think along with Ann Wilson, she's one of the best female rock singers. I think she's definitely better than you. Your, you know, you've got Barbara Streisand, incredible voice. That's another vocal tone that's amazing. But, you know, if she sings a rock song, it's embarrassing. Yeah, right. I mean, sure. and it's same with like these people like Celine Dion and, and Mariah Carey, where it's all fireworks, but there's no edge to it. You know, it's just, it's, it's empty to me. And Pat has a lot of, I guess, soul, but she's got that edge to her voice, that rocking edge where she can scream with the best of them, especially you hear that on Hell is for Children. She's just going off and it's, it really works as a rock singer. And I think she's just one of the best of all time. And I think that, and the fact that she came into the music business as a strong female, I mean, that is just, she the rock and roll hall of fame to me is long overdue it's a no-brainer she just belongs right in there i don't i hate the rock and roll of fame i think it's mostly a popularity contest you know the fact that judas priest one of the most important bands of all time total groundbreaking band it's got this weird category they put them in that where they put like producers and stuff is bullshit and they're full of shit and they deserve to die and there's like all these terrible kind of hip hop shit that goes in there that doesn't belong in there. Um, it, you know, it's a, it's a farce, but Pat, if you're going to put someone in there. Pat Benatar belongs right in there. No doubt.
1: Yeah. I was just going to also mention that great rock singers with great voices. I, I wanted to also call out somebody we haven't talked about, which is um, Amy Ray of the Indigo girls. Um, and th- they're mostly Indigo girls known for kind of more uh, folk kind of stuff. But Amy Ray, does do some rock songs with the Inigo Girls in her solo album. She does more rock stuff. Has an incredible rock voice that is not. Yeah, I've
0: never listened to them. I remember yeah. you had that on CD. Yeah, like I mean, back she, in the days, she yeah.
1: she has an incredible rock voice, and and I I just more people should hear that her singing those rock songs. It's great. It's gritty. It's soulful, and she's an amazing singer too. So I just wanted to, to call out Amy Ray as another uh, great uh, singer. So
0: go continue. OK, now for this whole Neil Giraldo thing, I think I'm kind of more on the side of Team Giraldo. I think it's fine yeah. if she wants to rebrand. I think Jeff makes a lot of good points. I think um, I do think there's no doubt that he had a hand in love as a battlefield and it was influential and groundbreaking. But that's kind of the problem with me is because I don't like that stuff as much. I really like the first three Pat Benatar albums, especially the second two. Yeah, Crimes of Passion and Precious Time. To me, those are her best work. And that's kind of what I want listen to. I don't really listen to the later albums. They're too synthy and too poppy for me. I'll make an exception for some of the stuff on Get Nervous. I really love Shadows of the Night. It's an absolute pop song, but it's, it's powerful. You know, and her voice is incredible in there. And it's just irresistibly catchy. I've had it stuck in my head all week, you know, as I've been revisiting the Pat Benatar uh, discography. Um, so that's kind of my beef, is the more Neil Giraldo took a front front seat, the less I like it. Yeah. You know, I actually like, um, I actually like, uh, you know, that stuff a lot less than I like the rocking stuff, right? So... Uh, again, uh, Tropico and 7 The Hard Way, where he had much more of of an active role, those are probably, that's some of my least favorite material, because it's pop, even though I think We Belong is a really good pop song, and she sings the shit out of it. It's like, I just, it's not one I would listen to that much, right? Or or Love is a Battlefield. I begrudgingly come to respect it as kind of innovative with a lot of its synth, and I have a lot of a war, more warm-hearted view of 80s synth than I used to. I used to hate this song. You know, I was just like, go back to fucking, you know, uh You Better Run and that kind of shit, right? Right. So, uh now... As far as her first album goes, you know, I mentioned this as a really interesting album and it's it's not bad. I don't have it on vinyl. I, I will get it someday because I do enjoy it on a certain level. It's more of a curio to me because of all the covers. I mean, when she covers Nick Gilder, you know, he's most famous for Hot Child in the City. I'm actually a big fan of his. I have all, almost all of his albums. But, you know, he's kind of this B-rate Canadian artist, a one hit wonder, but he's got some cool albums. They're kind of glam, power pop, which I really like. Um, and he does this song called Rated X. She sounds just like him. Like yeah. she actually imitates him. Uh, same with Dave Townsend of the Alan Parsons project on Don't Let It Show. Alan Parsons, you know, iRobot is an album that has all these different singers. I really love that album. She does a great version of the song, but if she's sounding, she's like imitating these people. John Mellencamp, I even mean, she kind of imitates his style, you know? So it's kind of interesting, but Heartbreaker really stands out on this record. It's an absolute classic. Um, and so let's play this. Um, you got it. Yeah,
2: you're the right guy is saying enough to release my inner fantasy. They have been subway enough, and you know that you are born to be. You're a heartbreaker, dream maker, love taker, don't you mess around with me, you're a heartbreaker.
0: Okay. Great, great song. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reason I wanted to play so much of the clip is I wanted to show the re- dynamics of Pat's voice, but also how well Neil Giraldo goes with what she's doing. Yeah. I mean, I think um, that I really, I really have a thing for females when they just go out on vocals, there's something, it just sends a chill down my spine in a way that like a male singer wouldn't. And I think one of my favorite singers is this artist, Laura Nyro. She was like a sixties kind of really groundbreaking artist you know her her material is a mixed bag, but I absolutely love her first album, "Eli and the Thirteenth Confession." And part of it is just the way she just goes all out on the vocals. You know, she's got so, this incredible voice. And um, I was just going to say, you like the female singers, but
1: you prefer the male singers on your ball, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, the male posters, right? Okay, yeah. like Dave. Like if David Lee Roth had a good female singing voice, actually, I was going to talk about this, and, and I forgot to put it in the notes. Is that you Know there was that whole thing with Eddie Van Halen wanting to, before he was uh, he brought in Sammy Hagar, he wanted to bring in uh, Patty Smythe yeah. from uh, right, Scandal. Yeah. And I think part of the reason is he heard Pat Benatar, yeah. I, I think, think part right. of the reason is Patty Smythe bears more than a small resemblance to Valerie Bertinelli. Maybe he was kind of thought she was cute, yeah. but but she also had a powerful singing voice, and we could have mentioned her along with uh, Quarter Flash. You know, yeah. I think that Scandal was definitely. Uh, a thing where, you know, it was a Pat Benatar, uh, Agreed, you know, trying the record company trying to capitalize on the Pat Benatar popularity. But I think you imagine like someone with Eddie's talent and Pat's, you know, vocals together, yeah. you know, it would have been a whole different thing. And, and obviously he had for years, he had a guy who couldn't sing at all, David yeah. Lee Roth. You know, it was yeah. incredible front man and the music's better with him than Sammy, even though Sammy's a much better technical singer. But I think he wanted, he probably heard stuff like this and thought, what if w- I was with that? You know, yeah. with my abilities and that, because you hear how good Neil is. You know, I mean, this guitar solo, the kind of high pitch, it really just goes with her voice. And that part where she just hits the high note is like one of my favorite things ever. It's kind of interesting. There's a lot of double tracking here. Um, you know, there's a weird effect on her voice, but I think it just works. And I think it's definitely in the top, you know, it's between this and Promises in the Dark, which I'm going to play in a minute for my favorite song of all time by them. Um, but Heartbreaker is an absolute stunner. Um, Crimes of Passions her best album, period. Uh, song for Song. It's it's really the most consistent. It's not, abs- it's not perfect, but it's the closest to perfect she ever got. Um, you know, it obviously has uh, Hit Me With Your Best Shot. Jeff played some of the guitar on that. It's one of my favorite guitar solos of all time. It's so melodic. It's so great. Pat's great on it. Um, but my favorite song on the album is well two favorites are Treat Me Right which is another incredible standout I was going to play the clip of the Us Festival for that one but again it's kind of the sound isn't great and the other one is their cover of the Young Rascals You Better Run I fucking think this song kicks ass It's I think it way blows away the original we'll probably link to the original maybe in, in, in the Instagram post release uh, but I want to play a little clip of this song because I think it's absolutely incredible just kicks ass. I mean, I love the high-pitched scream. That's yeah. like one of my favorite things ever. And I love when she says, yeah, you know, after that. And the video for this is great. She's just really charismatic and looks cool in it. She's got her, you know, power pop kind of vertical striped shirt, very early 80s with her full Pat Benatar do, you know. And just, it's just a, one of the, it might be in the top 10 cover songs of all time for me. Uh, I think it just, just crushes the original. Yeah. She, um, you know, and it's a great album. I think, uh, you know, again, it, there's a couple songs like little paradise and I'm going to, fo- I'm going to follow you is a bad. That was also out of video. Uh, I, you know, they're solid, but they don't really stand out. Out of touch is another standout for me. Uh, I love the cover of "Wuthering Heights on here too. It's really good version. She just nails it. Um, but again, it's not like a masterpiece. And I feel like she never really made her masterpiece, but this is probably as close as she would come. Precious Time, the follow-up, is also really good. It follows the same formula as the album. There are a couple of cover versions. They, they kind of try to reproduce the magic of uh, You Better Run by covering the, um, what is that band, Paul Revere and the Raiders, Just Like Me. That's also yep. pretty good. Uh, of course, this album you know, has Fire and Ice, which is a fantastic song. It was the big hit from the album. Um and it's got this title track, Precious Time, which I love, but it really does suffer from pretender's copyitis. I mean, it's it's such a clone. The guitar playing is just like James Honeyman Scott, but I think that's why I like it because I just love James Honeyman Scott's playing, but it's very derivative, right? And, um, oh God, there's a, you know, I I actually don't think Evil Genius is as terrible as you do. I really like Pat singing on it for one. You know, she, <laughs> she goes that, she goes, what you going to do? Evil genius. She goes super high on it. I kind of like, even though it's kind of goofy and funny and the lyrics are hilarious. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think um the one song on here that it really, really sucks is called it's a tough life and it's like fake reggae. And that's a, that's a Geraldo composition. I mm-hmm. do not like that song at all. I mean, there's a cu- couple of moments on it that are okay. I mean, the musicianship is good, but that's kind of the clunker. I will say, this is the third time that we are covering an artist that does a cover of Helter Skelter. I always talk. So we did two, right? They yeah. do Helter Skelter. We did Motley Crue. They do Helter Skelter. Yeah. And there's a cover of Helter Skelter on uh, precious time. I will say it's by far the best of the three, but it's because it's very faithful to the original. Yeah. And again, I feel like this is garbage that doesn't need to be on the album. I would have much rather had a, a third party songwriter throw in another song or another Geraldo Benatar composition uh, than having Elter Skelter. So that kind of drags the album down a little under the previous one. But this album does have a Benatar Geraldo absolute masterpiece written by them. The best song they ever wrote together. Other Maybe Hell is for Children is the only other contender. Uh, this is my favorite song probably by Pat Benatar. Um, I feel like her vocals and his playing and the band's playing, it's kind of like a Bruce Springsteen epic in a way. It's very dramatic, uh, very dynamic. You know, it's got a lot of parts to it. Uh, We're talking about Promises in the Dark. This is such an awesome song. Let's play a big clip of this. So 80s though, it's it's 80s, but in the best way possible. Yeah, I mean, it's I, like, I like it too, for but- one thing. Her you get the sense of the, her vocal range there. You get the kind of different ways she sings in the, you know, the softer part. And there's even other parts of the song because it, it's probably our more one of our more complicated songs, along with Hell is for Children, which I also think is another song that has these, you know, it's got a very calm bridge and it builds up to a crescendo on the chorus. And there's a lot of dynamics. And you also hear that incredibly melodic and memorable memorable guitar part. Uh, the way they work together. See, that's why I'm so long on Geraldo is I really think the way they work together is flawless when they hit their marks, you know, yeah. like when they do it right. Um, there's a, there's misses on these albums. Like I mentioned, it's a tough life and, and you know, you could argue evil genius, but there's these other, there's these tracks where it doesn't work out so well, but when it works, it's a it's as good as anything out there. Like, and, and this song is probably my favorite and I just love uh, the drama and dynamics of the song. Um, it's great. So after Precious Time, we have Get Nervous, and there's a huge paradigm shift here to a more pop-oriented uh, production. You know, it's, it kind of reminds me of uh, Missing Persons where they transitioned from, you know, we talked about in our Missing Persons in Berlin episode where they went from Spring Session M to the uh, Rhyme and Reason. This is a much more uh, successful transition to pop music, and it's not as overloaded with 80s production as would come but it's definitely a shift. And I definitely think it's maybe a shift in the wrong direction, but what works on here really works. And obviously Jeff played Shadows of the Night. It's a fantastic song. I also like the other singles on the album, uh, Looking for a Stranger, Too Little, Too Late. They're really catchy songs. Again, they're firmly pop songs. Um, and then Anxiety, which is kind of a new wave song, which I, I think Anxiety Get Nervous. So it was a, was a failed, kind of a failed fourth single, but it's catchy. Um, but I want to play an overlooked album track I really like, a really hard rock uh, track that I think let, kind of pointed to where Pat could go uh, in the direction I wish she would have gone in, which is, again, more big 80s, 80s-itis, what I call 80s-itis, uh, where they want to use all the new toys. Uh, it's that big 80s production, but it, it's hard rock song, and it's called The Victim, and I want to play that. I mean, it's not super catchy. It's kind of a grower, you know, but it's like the thing about it that I like is her voice is on point. She's just screaming, you know, I really like her singing on there again. It's definitely an album track. It's not something that's going to be a hit. It's not super memorable, but, um, you know, and and this album suffers from that a lot. I think that a lot of the songs are kind of samey or unmemorable, but I like that one just because of her performance. And I think it's also still rocking, even though it's very eighties, um, very synthy, um, Okay, Live from Earth, we talked about uh, Love is a Battlefield probably more than anything else. Right. Because we went into the the, it was a groundbreaking video. It was a groundbreaking song. Influential, you know, and I think uh, like I mentioned, I think there was some influence of uh, earlier stuff. I know that Neil Giraldo was the one who actually told Pat Benatar about Kate Bush. So he was definitely listening to a lot of the new music and more experimental stuff that was going on. We know he loved The Pretenders. And I think he probably listened to shock the monkey. Cause I think there's some uh, influence there um, again, after this period, I just have no interest in this music. You know, I mean, I don't mind love is a battlefield lipstick lies is kind of catchy. Um, you know, Tropico has we belong, but the rest of the album is just boring to me. It's like, it's all that bad synthy production, but without the catchy songs. And I feel even more that way about seven, the hard way her nineties records, you know, our, you know, wide awake and dreamland. It's just boring. Uh, true blue uh, or true love, which is the blues album. I have no interest in that kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, gravity's rainbow in the nineties albums just sound boring to me. And so, you know, I just don't really have much interest in that. And I feel like I'm a little, I'm a little short on those, but at the same time, you have to look at it. Like Pat did those things and they were successful Up until Seven the Hard Way, they were successful. She still had hits. She was still relevant. If she would have stayed in that kind of AOR, hard rock, edged, power pop sound of the early 80s, it probably would have gone out of style. And she wouldn't have had the longevity that she did have. But I just, you know, I really wish she would have made another album that was just of of that quality, but maybe less cover songs and more consistent if she could have. And I just don't think they ever really reached that potential that they have on the individual songs like jeff mentioned they're kind of they kind of became a greatest hits band even though i think those two albums have a lot of solid tracks really the hits are what stand the test of time yeah and um i just feel like she missed her potential in a way but at the same time Look at what she went through as an artist. I mean, we didn't even talk about the ad campaigns where they put fake cleavage on her, Uh you know, and stuff they did to her that they never would have done to a male artist. The fact that they put her on this rigorous schedule and kind of looked down on her. When she was pregnant, they were mad about that, you know, and and didn't want to give her a break to have her fucking child. You know, it's like all these things she pushed through and she was a strong personality who pushed through and she made smart business decisions. So they're still well off. They didn't spend all their money on drugs. They didn't do anything uh, like that. So to me, that's all admirable. And then, of course, there's at the end of the at the end of it. What you're left with is a couple of really classic songs that stand the test of time with this absolute incredible rock voice that regardless of gender towers above most singers. For sure. And I think that's what you're left with. You're left with an absolute hall of famer, all star. And regardless of Neil's contribution, I do think he is a great guitarist. And I think that the solos, if they were different, might not be as good. Um, even if you got somebody really good, it really fits with her sound, that that his kind of playing. And so I think that, um, you know, that's uh, ultimately I'm long because of that. Um, and I think she will stand the test of time. So that's where I'm going to wrap it up. Cool. Yeah. No, I... I... I'm a huge
1: admirer of her voice. I think she's an incredible talent. Um, I I'm with you. Like I, I wish you would, we would have more of the high quality stuff, you know, and and maybe less of you know evil genius, in my opinion. But <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, uh, I I think you know we're, we're both you know long on on Pat, and certainly I am uh, for for the hits, and you are beyond that, those even. So uh, that, that, that's also cool. So we'll wrap it up there. Thank you for uh, joining us on episode 19. Check out our Instagram. Uh, tell your friends who might enjoy this. If they don't know about the uh, podcast, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Thank you for doing that. And we'll catch you next time. This is Jeff signing off. Slips off. All, all right.
0: right. Signing Later. off.